Hope you're in Mark chapter number 10. Mark chapter number 10. We are working our way through the gospel of Mark. I think this is message number 21 in our series. We are working through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, all the way through till we get to the very end. We're a little over halfway now, start at the beginning of the year. As I introduced what our church's mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. If you've ever wondered, why does Fellowship Baptist Church exist? It exists for that purpose, according to Mark chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28 rather, finding and following Jesus. We want to help people do that. I believe that God has ordained His church and local churches around the world as the means through which people can find Jesus and find help to follow Jesus. And that's what, why we're going through the book of Mark, because Jesus teaches us how best we can follow him. It's been said that when Jesus came to earth to establish his kingdom, he came to turn the world upside down. Meaning, he came to flip the world's values and priorities and beliefs about everything on their head. That's actually what we've seen him do so far in the Gospel of Mark. For instance, we talked last week. If you were in the Connection Group this morning, you would have pressed into the message I preached last Sunday morning about how the disciples were thinking like the world thought when it came to greatness. They thought greatness was found in power and prestige and position. But Jesus turned greatness upside down and taught them that greatness is found in serving others. The week before that, we studied how the disciples couldn't cast a demon out of a little boy. They were convinced that success in spiritual warfare came down to having the right technique and doing the right thing and saying the right words and having just amount of right experience. But Jesus turned it upside down when he taught them that success in spiritual warfare had nothing to do with what they said. Had nothing to do with what they did but on how much they depended upon God. Back in chapter 8, Jesus taught his disciples that, that they could find true life by losing their life. He taught them that the way to glory was down the path of suffering. Now this was totally upside down to a culture and to a group of 12 men that were doing everything they could to live an easy and comfortable life. You go to Matthew chapter 5 and you study Jesus' sermon on the mount. Greatest sermon ever preached in red letters right there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the way Jesus starts that sermon was by, by turning the world's view of happiness upside down. He said, happy are they, blessed are they that mourn upside down. Blessed are they that are meek. Blessed are they, happy are they that are poor in spirit and happy are they who, who suffer persecution for righteousness sake. Now, if you had been on the hillside listening to that in this day, that would have shocked you. That was totally upside down. In the passage that we're going to study this morning, Jesus continues his very upside down teaching. This time, the topic at hand is marriage. When Jesus was approached and questioned by the religious leaders of his day about marriage in our text, he went totally countercultural on them. And from his teaching, we learn how followers of Christ, how real disciples should think about marriage and should approach the marriage relationship. Now, I want you to listen closely. Because before I get into the text, I feel like I need to make a few statements uh, so as to be clear and, 
and, and try to prevent misunderstanding in the message today, I, I want you to know my heart from the get-go. I'm, I'm certainly not apologizing for what I'm about to preach, but I want to be clear. The text is going to mention one of the most sensitive topics in all of Scripture, and that's the topic of divorce. I'm aware that, that many in this room this morning have been touched in some way by divorce. Some in here have been in a divorce themselves. Some have parents that have been in a divorce. Some have adult children that have been in a divorce. Quite frankly, some in here are probably on their way to a divorce if something doesn't change. Let me say this to you. In no way does divorce make you a second-class Christian, our church member, our church attender. Because I know for a fact, based on what the Scripture teaches, that the grace of God forgives any sin and can redeem any regret. It's my desire to speak compassionately and to be sensitive to the fact that many in here might have a regretful past when it comes to marriage. I want you to hear me closely. By no means am I wanting to pour salt into your wound this morning. That being said, I'm not just called to preach compassionately. I'm called by God to preach truthfully. Sometimes that requires boldness that I don't have in and of myself. See, this text right here is the very reason why I'm convicted as a pastor to preach verse by verse chapter by chapter, and book by book. Here's why. Because I wouldn't preach this text if I had the choice. If I wasn't preaching sequentially through the Gospel of Mark, I would skip over this one. I would not preach it, especially in this setting. That's why I choose to preach this way. Because I'm a human and I fear man sometimes. And this idea, this idea of expositional preaching, it prevents me from skipping over uncomfortable passages or even passages that are totally countercultural. And if I were to skip over this, listen, I would be neglecting the call of God in my life as your pastor to preach the whole counsel of God. I'd be disobedient to him. In the same way, I'd be disobedient to him if I preached this without compassion. Sensitivity to who might be in here listening to this and how this might affect you. And so I want to strike that balance. Will you pray for me as I try to do that this morning? And so in all seriousness, I want to preach with humility and grace, but I want to preach committed to truth. And I hope you'll listen the same way. The second thing I want to say about this message before we study it is the 12 verses that we're going to study today in no way can make up a comprehensive study on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I, I'm, I'm trying my best to preach these 12 verses in their context. And so I'm not going to answer all your questions. I'm probably not even going to ask some of the questions you'd want me to ask or address. I'm going to cover what Mark covers no more and no less. Now, should you have any questions, I mean this, should you have any questions about what this text doesn't say or what my message doesn't address in and of itself, I want you to ask me those questions. Text them to me, email them to me, uh, schedule a meeting with me sometime. I would love to sit down and talk about any question you have about this issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, with that being said, let's jump into our study. There, there's, there's two parts to the sermon this morning. That's how the text breaks up. Number one... The text shows us the world's misconception of marriage. And number two, the text shows us God's divine conception of marriage. 
Again, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples how to think about the marriage relationship. And it's very different than how the world thinks about it. Look at verse 1 and 2. And he arose from thence, that's talking about Jesus, cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resorted to him again. And as he was wont or accustomed to, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife or divorce his wife? Tempting him. So the Pharisees represent to us the world's misconception of marriage. What I mean by that is here's what the world asks. How easily can I get out of it? That's what the Pharisees were asking Jesus. A very tricky question about divorce. They said, Jesus, is it against the Old Testament law for a man to divorce his wife? Thankfully, Mark gives us the motive of these Pharisees. He, he said they were tempting Jesus. They were trying to trick Jesus. So then what was so tricky about this question? It seems pretty straight up to me. What was tricky about it? Well, two things. Number one, there were two main schools of thought on divorce in this day. One was conservative and held by a few. One was very progressive and, and, and held by most, including these Pharisees. So, so first, there was a rabbi named Shimei who, who taught that divorce was only permitted in cases of adultery. That was the conservative view of their day. Then there was a rabbi named Hillel that taught divorce was allowed for, well, just about any reason. Now, you can study history, but this is true. If a man's wife burnt his breakfast, he could divorce her. How would that have gone for you women in here this morning? If a man found another woman that he just liked better, then they believed that he could just leave his wife for that woman. Now, the reason why this is tricky was because there were two schools of thought and people on both sides of those issues and the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to pick a side, thus offending the other side and losing some of his popularity. There's a second reason and maybe the primary reason for why this is a tricky question and it had to do with politics. See, the Herod in charge during this day was a man by the name of Herod Antipas. He's the one that beheaded John the Baptist a couple chapters ago. Do you remember why he beheaded John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist spoke out against unbiblical marriage and divorce. The Pharisees were hoping that the same would happen to Jesus if he spoke out against it as well like John the Baptist did. They were hoping to get him to say something about divorce that would get back to Herod and hopefully get Jesus beheaded. So the qu question was really tricky. Very, very tricky. Because it would potentially pit Jesus up against the people of his day and the politicians of his day. But it's interesting how Jesus handled the question. You know what he did? He went back to Scripture. And he didn't just go back to Scripture. Here's what he did. He went back to a right interpretation of Scripture. Because he knew the Pharisees were really masters at their craft. Twisting and, and doing these hermeneutical gymnastics with Old Testament law that would fit their narrative or their agenda or their position. Now, I want, I want to say this to you. It teaches us something vitally important at the front end of this message. When it comes to marriage, hear me, and everything related to it, we don't get to write our own rules. Okay, we don't get to do what the Pharisees did. We don't just get to come to our, our own conclusions based on our denomination or on our experience or our emotions or our upbringing. Okay, the scripture and a proper interpretation of it is the final authority on all matters of life, including marriage. Amen. 
You should believe that, by the way, if you're a disciple. So Jesus asked the Pharisees in verse 3, what did Moses command you? You know, Moses wrote the Torah. Look at the Pharisees' response in verse 4. They said, and they said Moses suffered or, or, or permitted to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. That's what Moses said. Now, what were they referring to? They were referring to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. You can read it on your own sometimes. And they were using that Old Testament passage to justify an easy, no-fault divorce. They're claiming that Moses created the bill of divorcement, so he made it possible for us to do so. And if the great Moses said we could, well, it must be okay, right, Jesus? You're never going to go and contradict Moses, are you? Yet Jesus corrects them in verse 5. What did he say in verse 5? And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. Jesus said, watch here, the bill of divorcement in Deuteronomy 24 doesn't mean what you think it means, guys. It wasn't created to give people an out from the marriage covenant. It was given to my people as a safeguard to protect women from the sinfulness of men. Let me explain. If you study Deuteronomy 24 in its context, you'll find that it's, it's less about permitting a divorce and more about restricting a certain type of remarriage. For instance, in that day, this is just one instance, in that day, the husband would divorce his wife, oftentimes send her away to, to marry an old rich guy. And when the old rich guy died, he would convince his wife to remarry him, and then he would get the old rich guy's inheritance money and livestock and land. Seriously. So the bill of divorcement in Deuteronomy 24 would protect women from their husband's greed. And from being used for financial gain. And this is just one example of man's sinfulness toward women in this day. So it's important to understand that divorce wasn't commanded by God. And it wasn't God's idea of how marriage should end. But it was eventually permitted in order to place bounds on men's behavior in a very patriarchal society. It kind of gives you a heart of God towards women, by the way. They were equal to him as men were. And he did what he had to do to protect them. Think about it like this. Smoking is legal, but there are dozens of laws that regulate it. Okay, you can't smoke in most restaurants or on planes. Tobacco companies can't advertise on TV. They have to display warnings on every cigarette pack. So smoking is legal, but it's regulated. Now, does our government endorse smoking? No. They allow it but they regulate it, thereby acknowledging that it's not a good thing. This is what Jesus is saying here. Divorce was allowed in the Old Testament, but very, very regulated, thereby proving it's not a good thing. Yet the Pharisees are using this Old Testament passage to justify easy divorce, no-fault divorce, and minimize the permanence of marriage. And I told you, the Pharisees represent the world's misconception of marriage because it seems like in our culture today, it's all about this. How easily can I get out of it? I'm going to borrow what one scholar, Abraham Corvillis, said to describe the world's misconception of marriage. He said, the world believes marriage is a matter of convenience and pleasure, easily undone and rapidly remade. The world says, hey, I'm attracted to you. I've enjoyed sleeping with you and living with you for some time now. Let's get married and try this thing out. Three or four years later and a kid later, two kids later. Ah, 
It's too stressful being married to you. I'm not attracted to you anymore. You don't try anymore. Let's just get divorced and move on. When the marriage is no longer convenient or pleasurable, they just undo it and the world remakes it with another person without giving it a second thought. That's the world. Here's what's sad. Believers, those who claim to be followers of Christ, have fallen for the world's misconception of marriage. Our standards have lowered. Believers have done what the Pharisees did. They have minimized the permanence of the marriage covenant. And I think one reason for this, and hear me, is because the church has in large part remained silent about this issue. Divorce remains the often unacknowledged elephant sitting squarely in the center of the sanctuary. We serve around it. We give around it. We pray around it. We carry on with praise and worship services next to it. And we outright ignore that it exists. Thus, the world's misconception of marriage has become the Christian's misconception of marriage, primarily because the world has been louder about their misconception than the church has been louder uh, or loud about, about God's divine conception. Would to God we had had some John the Baptist today that stood up and spoke the truth, even when it cost him his head. We should have a church that lovingly, I said lovingly, but boldly speaks the truth about biblical marriage as well. I believe this text calls upon Christians today to return to what the Bible says about marriage. And as your pastor, I'm calling upon you who call yourselves followers of Christ to make his word the final and full authority when it comes to marriage, not what the world around you has to say about it. So then what is God's idea of marriage? That's the second part of the message. Instead of being deceived by the world's misconception of marriage, Jesus is going to teach these Pharisees and his disciples God's divine conception of marriage, which is not concerned, watch, how easily that you can get out of it, but rather how committed you should be to it. Look at verses 6 through 9. Red letters. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God's divine conception of marriage. Followers of Christ should ask this. How committed should I be to it? Not how easily can I get out of it. How committed should I be to it? Do you notice when Jesus began to teach on the subject of marriage that he didn't go back to Deuteronomy? He went back to Genesis. All the way back to creation in verse 6 it said, but from the beginning of the creation. See, the Pharisees, so very important, the Pharisees wanted to take their theology of marriage from what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. But Jesus said that our theology on marriage ought to first be taken from what Moses wrote in Genesis. Jesus said, hey, let me take you back to how my father created marriage because how he created it is how he intended for it to be. In other words, God's creation of marriage before the fall, before sin entered into the world, is a picture of the ideal marriage in his eyes. So when Jesus went back to creation, he said, well... Here's the first thing. God created the marriage 
to be between one man and one woman. Okay, a couple of important details here. One man. One woman. Okay, not a plurality of wives. And if you're crazy enough, not a plurality of husbands. I mean, what husband would ask for that? Our, our wife would ask for that. Notice he also said one man and one woman. It's clear that God's design of marriage is heterosexual. Then Jesus mentioned the purpose of marriage is for two people to become one. What is he referring to? A unified companionship. God's idea of the marriage relationship is not that two people live in the same house but go in two totally different directions. That's a business arrangement. And sadly, a lot of marriages today have less to do with mutual companionship and more to do with a partnership in raising kids and paying bills. That's not what God had in mind for your marriage. God's idea is that two people become close friends, even best friends, and enjoy a life together so unified that one cannot feel whole without the other. Jesus even taught that the way to this ideal unity in marriage, he said it in verse number eight, or, or, or rather verse number seven, is, is to shift one's dependence and one's loyalty from their parents to their spouse. This is important. That doesn't mean that, that married children can no longer respect and honor their parents and have a good relationship with their parents, but it does mean that their spouse becomes their first loyalty and their first dependence outside of the Lord, not their parents. It's interesting to me that one of the biggest causes of stress within a marriage often revolves around parents and in-laws. Yet God, from the beginning, taught us how to solve the problem that he predicted would happen. He said the man who's ready to get married leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife and his father and his mother, they let it happen. And when it doesn't happen on both sides, there's problems. Okay, children who are married but still loyal and dependent first to their parents before their spouse are hurting God's idea of companionship. If you listen to your parents more than you listen to your spouse, you're hurting your marriage. If you listen to your parents before you listen to your spouse, you're hurting your marriage. If you spend more time with your parents than you do your spouse, you're hurting your marriage. But at the same time, parents who are competing for their married children's time and attention and loyalty are also hurting God's idea of companionship. So if you're a parent or an in-law in here, stay out. Your kids only need you if they need money, okay? No, just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Not true. Not true. It is true, but it's not true. It is true. It's so true. And I'm going to milk the cow until it's out of milk. In all seriousness, it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. If you're married, you need to be first loyal and dependent to your spouse in every area. If you're the parent of somebody that's married, you need to sit back and let it happen. Don't run interference. Jesus is teaching, watch, from the beginning that God created marriage between one man and one woman in unity, verse 7 and 8. And then verse 9, for one life. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that we should not try to unone what God has made one. Okay, what God meant to be permanent, a permanent covenant, should not be viewed as a temporary contract. And there's a difference between the two. A contract can have an end date. But a covenant can end only when one of the parties dies. So no matter how tough circumstances become or how much your feelings change over time, the covenant of marriage was created to remain in place until death do ye part. Now this isn't what people want to hear in 2021. It's not what people wanted to hear in Mark chapter 10. Most people want God to approve the wedding, but they don't want God involved in the divorce. It's why they come to a church for a wedding, but they go to a court of law for a divorce. Many couples invite God to the marriage altar, but then they leave him there. Jesus elaborates on this idea of commitment in verses 11 and 12. He said, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Jesus is telling the disciples that they're no better than an adulterer when they follow the world's idea of marriage. If they just divorce their wife for the sake of going after another wife or another woman, their divorce may be permitted by law, but it isn't approved by God. Can I speak in our terms today? The judge downtown may allow you to get out of your marriage easily, but the judge uptown doesn't. And last time I checked, God doesn't like it when we let man's standard for our marriage overrule his standards for our marriage. Do you see how Jesus is turning the idea of marriage upside down here? If you're a little bit uncomfortable, it's because, well, we are so used to hearing it the other way. If this feels really like, ooh, well, that's kind of tense. It's because our culture speaks just the opposite and you hear that message 10 times as much as you hear this one. It's not because the Bible's wrong. You don't feel uncomfortable because the Bible's wrong. I hope you don't feel uncomfortable because I've been offensive on purpose. I think you feel uncomfortable because this is just strange territory. The Pharisees had this misconception of marriage. How easily can we get out? Jesus said followers of Christ have a divine conception of marriage and they're more concerned about how committed they should be to it. I'll just sum up the text in one statement. Followers of Christ get married to stay married. Followers of Christ get married to stay married. If you're saved in here, you shouldn't look at marriage the same way the world looks at marriage. I don't care what your coworkers say. I don't care what your family says. I don't care what your friends say. I don't care what some churches say. What does the Bible say? We should be looking for, we should never be looking for a way to get out of marriage. We should be looking for ways to make our marriage work. So when followers of Christ are struggling in marriage, they seek reconciliation. They seek restoration. They seek repentance. They seek forgiveness. They seek change. They seek counsel. They seek God. They don't seek divorce. In fact, I think the word divorce shouldn't even be in the vocabulary of married couples that claim to be followers of Christ. We should not throw that word around in our homes. 
Why? God didn't create marriage to be temporary. He said, what, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He didn't create marriage to be an experiment. He created it to be a commitment. That's why if we want the benefits of marriage today, we don't experiment for a long length of time before we commit. That's not God's idea. It's interesting to me, and I'm almost done, that the way Jesus deals with the sensitive topic of divorce is not by getting into a big debate or into the weeds of everything surrounding the topic or, or, or getting into an argument about when it's appropriate and when it's not. He does talk about that in other passages of Scripture. Instead, in this passage, he starts by going back to God's original creation of marriage. You know what that teaches us? That there would be less divorce today if more people went back to how God intended marriage to be and before they got married, commit to that. Not the world's idea of marriage. So can I just ask you today, when it comes to marriage, what are you most concerned about? How easily you can get out of it? How justified you would be if you did? Or how committed you should be to it? See, as followers of Christ, I think this passage, it compels us to try everything we can to keep the marriage permanent. So an application, I'm going to get down and talk to you for a second. I'll be done. I said at the beginning of the message, there are some marriages in here that have already been broken. Your marriage isn't falling apart. It's already fallen apart. I've already signed the dotted line. Decision's been made. Here's what I want you to understand. God's not done with you. And your hope of a, of a better and even purposeful future in the kingdom of God is not threatened by a mistake you made in marriage or a mistake that was done to you. I believe God wants to heal that part of your heart. And I believe He can. Also, Having a broken marriage doesn't mean this church is done with you either. I think I want a I louder amen by members of our church from that one. Having a broken marriage means this church isn't done with you either. Amen. And church, I hope you believe that in every fiber of your being. I almost feel the need sometimes to apologize for all the ways that divorced people have been mistreated by other Christians our churches, or even by family members who claim to be followers of Christ because of your broken marriage. I want to tell you this. Nowhere in our text this morning and nowhere in all of Scripture does Jesus justify the mistreatment of somebody whose marriage broke. Nowhere. And any denomination, church, or Christian that tries to justify a mistreatment of somebody who divorced, they are stretching the Scriptures, they're being the Pharisees, and they're not right. So what do I do if I've been divorced? Well, here's the first step. I encourage you, if possible, and I know it's not possible sometimes, but if possible, seek reconciliation with your spouse. If it's too late for that, then you need to make things right with God. If what He intended to be permanent, you made temporary, 
and it wasn't according to Scripture, you need to make that right with God. And you need to believe in your heart when you go to Him in humility, He will forgive you. He will. He will. And then you need to seek forgiveness from those you hurt. And you need to give forgiveness to those that hurt you. And you know what you need to do? You need to pray every day. God, give me grace and wisdom to not repeat the same mistake. I know that not every marriage in here is represented by divorce. But there are marriages in here that are struggling. I know that for a fact as a pastor, but beyond that, in a room this size, when two sinners say I do, and a lot of us have done that, we act like sinners. And we get into seasons of sinning against each other. And there's some marriages in here that probably aren't reflecting the gospel of Christ according to Ephesians chapter 5. If that's you, three steps. You ready? Number one, admit your problem. I'm going to go ahead and speak mainly to the men right here. Because 98% of the time, guess who asked for counseling from the pastor? The wife. You know why? they got to drag their husband there. Because men have this, this inner sense of pride, don't we? That says we're never wrong. And plus, I don't think the pastor needs to hear our problems. No, we don't need a counselor. That's just childish. If you just do A, B, and C, our marriage will get better. So men, you need to understand you've got a problem. If your wife is pointing out a pattern of behavior or vice versa. The first step is saying, you know what? We need, we need help. Admit a problem and then get help. This church exists to help struggle in marriages. There's people in our church, not just me and Jenny. There are people in our pastoral staff and there are deacons and their wives. And there are other people in our church whose marriage has once been on the rocks, but now it's recovered by the grace of God and doing well. And I would pair you with a married couple that could walk through those difficulties with you because this church is convinced if we can save you from divorce, we want to do it. Amen. But you got to let us. If you're struggling, you admit your problem, you get help. And number three, don't quit. Don't quit. All good things come on the other side of perseverance. All good things. Good things don't come easy. All of it comes on the other side of somebody that says, I'm not going to give up. So let me talk to you today. Don't give up. Ma'am, if you tried for, for weeks or months or maybe even years to get your husband to change, don't resign to the fact that he'll just never change. Get on your knees and pray to a holy God. And believe that God can change anybody, anytime, anywhere, and vice versa. Don't quit praying. Don't quit loving. Don't quit forgiving. And then to the happily married. We have any happily married people in here? Amen. Got some happily? Raise your hand. I'm happy I married the girl I married. All right. If you guys aren't raising your hand and your wife's in the building, I will offer counseling for free. <laughs> In my office, all right? If there's ever a time you should lie in church, it's right there. You should just say right here. Yeah, happily married. You see that, babe? I raised my hand. So she can't say you didn't. If you're happily married, three, three points of application. Keep growing. Keep pursuing. And keep loving. That's it. What got you to the point of being happily married will keep you happily married. But the moment you stop those things 
and you stop them for long enough and you tolerate them for long enough, you will no longer be happily married. I don't care if you've been happily married for four or five decades. That can stop just like that when one or both spouses stop loving, growing, and pursuing. One more group in here. To the not yet or never will be married. To the not yet or never will be married. And and I, I didn't stutter on that last one. The epistles speak of a group of people that God God has ordained in their life to never be married. And if God equips some people for singleness the rest of their life, it's not a bad thing. And so for the some that would never will be married, maybe because you got married and your spouse died and you're just never going to get married again. Maybe because God has, has given you the gift of singleness. Or those that will get married, and it's in God's providential plan for you to get married, but you're not yet married. Three things for you. Please hear this. Young people, college students, young adults. Stay patient. Stay patient. If I were to put everybody up here that has had a broken marriage in the past, I can guarantee you that more than 75% of them would be the result of impatience. They didn't choose right. At the front end, they thought, I'll never get married, so I better just take the first one I can get. When one came along, they met at work. Oh, they weren't a Christian, but I'll I'll just flirt and convert. Well, you flirted, but the converting didn't take place. Well, they'll change over time. I know they will because I serve a big God and we just click and... Oh, man. Right? And most marriages that are broken can be traced back to the point that they just picked wrong in the first place. And I think people would tell you, don't do that. It's better to stay single than to get impatient. Number two, stay pure. Do not satisfy your sexual desires or your God-given desire for companionship prematurely or foolishly. You don't get to just have sex as much as you want until marriage. That's not God's plan. Read the scriptures. That is a holy thing in the bounds of marriage. And I wish, I, oh, I wish I could tell you the specifics of people that have had sexual struggles within their marriage and it's traced back to how flippantly they handled sex before marriage. Don't think that you get married and it fixes everything. If you can't, by the Holy Spirit's help, have temperance on that part of your life when you're single, you won't have temperance on it when you're married. Stay pure. One more. Stay content in Christ. Not yet married. Never will be married. Hear me, please. Marriage isn't your identity. It's not who you are. I could die right now before I even give the invitation and my wife would go on because her identity is in Christ. She wouldn't die too. She would suffer and she would grieve and she would mourn, I I think. (laughs) Most days. Not on Monday mornings, but after that she would. But she has her own walk with Christ. She has a life outside of me. And she had a life before me. 
And if you're single, you have a life outside of marriage. And, and cherish singleness. Seriously, cherish it while you have it. Because when you no longer have singleness, and I don't want to sound trite, but I, this is serious. When you no longer have singleness, you no longer have time. And God might be giving you extra energy and extra time that married people don't have right now to do kingdom work. Yeah. I mean that with all my heart. There's some people that can't do a certain amount of kingdom work because, well, they got to go home. That's, how, that's what married people do. That's what married people are supposed to do. You're supposed to raise your kids. Go to their ball games, coach them, spank them. I mean, uh, uh, put them in the corner of timeout is what I meant. I meant. Sorry. Take away their blocks, whatever you do. Um, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, God, God could be giving you a space of time right now where you have a little bit more margin because you're single. View it with that perspective. Because I'm telling you, there are people in our church that are single and they are some of the greatest workhorses in this ministry than anybody. Why? Because they can be. It's amazing to watch them say, you know what, I'm not going to wait till I get married to be of use and purpose. No, no. They get plugged in and get active. They have a smile on their face because their identity is not found in a relationship with somebody else. Their identity is found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you keep it that way. I hope I've been understood well today. If not, I'll be available for questions. I really mean that. If you have questions that I didn't answer or that I was, maybe I confused you more than when you came. It wasn't my intention, but I hope that, that this message has landed somewhere in your heart uh, that is soft. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.